I encourage you to go back there and check that out. All right, this morning, this is in a sequence. I started talking about things that make the Word of God of none effect. God is a good God. God loves us. God is faithful. Most of us embrace those sayings, but like it says in Mark 7, 13, traditions, doctrines of men make the Word of none effect. And so I'm encountering some of the religious traditions that really keep us from embracing and fully understanding how good God is. For instance, for you to say that God is good and then turn around and say God's the one that controls everything. Nothing happens but what he approves it. Satan can't do anything without his approval. Well, that makes God responsible for all the rape, the murder, the heartache, the hurt, the pain. And that just lessens, it takes away the power of saying that God is a good God. But when you start attributing all of this evil to him. So we talked about that. I showed how that the Old Testament, yes, there was wrath and there was punishment from God, but that was not really God's true nature. God waited for 2,000 years before he gave the law and then the law was only temporary until Jesus could come. And there was a reason why he did this. Basically, the human race was becoming so corrupt That before Jesus could come into this earth, God had to do something to restrain the amount of sin or Satan would have just polluted the human race so there wouldn't have been a virgin left for Jesus to have been born through. So the way he limited sin was by releasing his wrath and punishment. It wasn't his true nature or he would have done it from the very beginning. But he added it and it says this over in Galatians chapter 3. The law was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promises were made. It was only a temporary measure. And the problem has been that the body of Christ has tried to mix all this together and come up with an impression that God sometimes is angry, sometimes he's kind. Is, is he the God of the new covenant or the God of the old covenant? Will the real God please stand up? And they are confused. And so we talked about that and tried to deal with all that. Last night I talked about how that God by grace has already provided everything. It's not based on your performance. And you just simply reach out and appropriate what God has already provided by grace. That's what faith is. Faith is a positive response to God's grace. It is not something you do to get God to move. Boy, these are huge concepts. These are big concepts, concepts that are contrary to most people's doctrine. And this is the reason that little statements like God's a good God, God's a faithful God, God never fails, that uh, the reason that that is voided in most people's lives and doesn't release the power is because of these religious traditions that minimize and make those truths of none effect. I want to amplify on this this morning and just begin to start talking about how that God has dealt with our sins. We all say that our sins are forgiven, but then, again, there's religious traditions that say, oh yeah, our sins were only forgiven until the next time we sin. And most Christians still live with a sin consciousness that is not consistent with what the Bible teaches. Let me just first of all use an example. If, if I was your friend, and if I said, man, I just am... I'm your friend and I want to treat you good. And if I extended all kinds of love and grace towards you, but then I said, and if you do one thing that violates what I want you to do, my wrath is going to come on you. I won't be your friend until you repent and start doing what's right again. 
You know, if I was that kind of a friend that my friendship with you was based on your performance, we wouldn't be friends very long. You know, one of the things that really makes a good friend is a person who accepts you and they know that you aren't perfect. And even if you do something wrong, they're going to love you. There's nothing you can do to turn them away. I've actually had some friends. There there is a friend of mine, I'm thinking of a specific person that, you know what, there's some bad things that have happened. I said, you know what, it doesn't matter. I said, I love you regardless of what you do. And it just doesn't matter. Our friendship isn't based on whether everything goes right or not. There's some people that I've been friends with that even though, you know, we've had some rough times and they don't agree with me and everything, it doesn't matter. If they called, I'd give them anything I've got. If I called them, they'd give me anything that they've got. Our friendship isn't based on whether or not I am the perfect person. In marriage, you know, if marriage was based on you've got to be the perfect person, I guarantee you, your marriage would fall apart. And this is why so many marriages fail today is because they're looking for the perfect person. Man, Jamie has to give me a lot of grace. I am not the perfect husband. And she is merciful to me. And I know that Jamie loves me, not because I deserve it, but because she's chose to love me. I really don't think you can maintain relationship long term without a tremendous amount of grace. And yet, the church is basically presenting that God's relationship with us is based on our performance. And if you don't do everything right, if you don't dot every I and cross every T, then the wrath of God is going to come upon you. And there's varying degrees of this. The ultra-Pentecostals will believe that every time you sin, you lose your salvation. And if you were to die in a situation like that, you'd die and go to hell. A lesser interpretation, but the same thing, same principle is that, oh, you wouldn't lose your salvation. You'd still go to heaven, but God won't answer your prayers. God won't fellowship with you. You won't have joy. God is going to cut off His blessing into your life until you repent and get back in fellowship. And it's the same thing, that basically your relationship with God is based on your performance. And I tell you, if you believe that, then you are going to void diminish, make of none effect that truth that God is a good God, that God is a faithful God. Because you'll say, well, God would be faithful if I was faithful. No, His faithfulness isn't dependent upon your faithfulness and on your goodness. And I know some of what I've said just here as introduction is like, this can't be true. This is too good to be true. Well, that's what I want to share with you this morning and share the good news with you. It's nearly too good to be true. First of all, let me look over here in uh, Luke chapter 1. This is uh, John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, who was prophesying at the birth of John. He had been dumb ever since the angel told him that he was going to have a child, and he didn't believe, and the angel struck him dumb. And he wasn't able to talk until John the Baptist was born. And when John was born, his uh, mouth was loosed, and he began to start prophesying. And I hadn't got time to read the whole thing, but let me just break into a part of what he said in... Luke chapter 1, verse 76, it says, And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. This says in prophecy, it was the Holy Spirit speaking through him, that you are going to give knowledge of salvation to God's people by the remission of their sins. The word remission of their sins over in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, 
and Colossians chapter 1, verse 14, the word remission of sins, it says that uh, God, let's see, I, I can't remember the exact quotation. Let me just read this in Ephesians chapter 1. Have you got it? In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And over in Colossians 1, 14, it says we have redemption through his blood. That is the remission of sins. And so the remission of sins is talking about the forgiveness of your sins. It's through understanding that your sins are forgiven that you really understand salvation. If you do not understand this issue of forgiveness of sins, you cannot understand salvation. That's what all of these scriptures are saying. And I believe that there is a lot of confusion in the body of Christ about forgiveness of sins. Basically, the body of Christ is preaching that when you get born again and you make Jesus your Lord, your sins were forgiven up until that point. And then every sin that you commit from that time on after you're born again is a new transgression against God that is going to affect your relationship Again, to some degree, Pentecostals would believe you lose your salvation and you die and go to hell with an unconfessed sin. Other people would believe, oh, it's not that severe, but God won't bless you. He won't answer your prayers. He won't fellowship with you if you've got an unconfessed sin. And so you got to get every sin confessed and under the blood. And you know what? That is an unworkable doctrine. You can't live that way. And some of you are thinking, oh, I confess every sin. You know, the scripture talks about the him that knows to do good. To him it is sin. And so sin isn't only the times that you directly transgress a law, but sin is when you should be doing something good and you fail to do it. So sin isn't just the bad that you do that transgresses a commandment. Sin is also the good you fail to do. Now, if you use that definition of sin, then you know what? Every one of us is failing to be as good as we could be. Every one of us have been commanded to love other people, to esteem other people better than ourselves, to lay down, to turn the other cheek, to always put other people first and on and on. We've been commanded to study the word and to love God with our whole heart and our whole strength and our, all of our might and you know what? We are failing constantly in this. And if you really believe that you have to have every sin confessed and that you can't have any problem in your life, then you know what's going to happen? We're going to live a life about the way most of us are living. Because we'll go around with a sin consciousness just constantly knowing I'm not everything I should be. And you won't doubt that God has the power. You'll just doubt that God is, not, that God is willing to use His power because you know you don't deserve it. And so you go around and, you know, if I stand up here and talk about I've seen people raised from the dead and blind eyes open, most of you believe that. This is a Saturday morning. You're out here listening to a preacher at a hotel on a Saturday morning. This isn't your nod to God crowd. This isn't Sunday morning. You're a fanatic. Or you were drug here by a fanatic. You believe in supernatural power of God. You believe in this. You believe in these things. And if I said, how many of you believe that God raises the dead? See, everybody goes to clapping and if, if somebody fell over dead and I said, how many of you believe God can raise him from the dead? 
You know where I'd lose 90% of you? I'd say, all right, if you believe it, you come up here and pray for them. And all of a sudden, man, here you are clapping it. Oh, I believe it happens. And you'll believe that if I pray for them, oh, you're excited. You want to get up here and see it. But I say, you come up here, you pray for them. And all of a sudden your excitement turns to fear. Your enthusiasm turns to reservation. Like, oh no, what's the difference? You don't doubt God has the power. You know what you're doing? You don't feel worthy. You don't think that you have done enough. You have this conscience that, well, I'm a sinner. I'm not, I haven't studied the word. Oh, I knew I should have prayed more. I knew I should have been doing this. And your own conscience condemns you. You lack faith, not in God's ability, but in his willingness, because you believe that God has to deal with every sin individually. I'm going to show you this morning that God forgave all of your sins, past, present, and even future sins. Sins that you haven't even committed yet have all been forgiven. They're already dealt with. God is not holding back and dealing with you according to your sin. Now that's nearly too good to be true. And that is directly opposite of what religion teaches today. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter nine. And I want to share some verses with you out of this. I wish I had time to just teach on the whole book of Hebrews. This is one of the most powerful books in the Bible. The whole thing is given to show that Jesus and the covenant that Jesus put into effect is superior to the Old Testament law. They are not compatible. The Old Testament law, I read some of these verses yesterday in uh, Hebrews chapter seven. And in verse uh, 18, it says, there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better covenant did by the which we draw nigh unto God. Man, the Old Testament law has been totally abolished. It is obliterated. The old covenant has changed. We now have a new covenant and it all centers around this issue of forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament, people's sins were not truly forgiven. They were covered. It was like paying for something on credit. In a sense, Jesus hadn't died for the sins of the whole world. And so people were born again. They weren't born again in the Old Testament. They were saved. They were in relationship with God by looking forward to the atonement that was coming for their sin. And every time they sinned, they had to make an atonement. And it, it's going to say some of these things in more detail in Hebrews chapter 9. But it says that the blood of bulls and of goats could never take away sins. Nobody was ever forgiven and cleansed through the Old Testament sacrifices. They were only types and shadows and pictures. And the, what it was picturing is that the soul that sins, it shall die. Every time you sin, there has to be death. And rather than you die physically, the Lord gave an animal that you killed it and shed its blood to atone for your sin. But again, it was only a type and shadow. It didn't really work. It was just illustrating that there has to be blood shed. And through the grace of God, he, instead of you shedding your blood, God was going to give a sacrifice. There was coming a lamb that would pay for the sins of the whole world. So the Old Testament sacrifices were symbolic, pointing forward to what would take place. 
And since they were symbolic, then the symbolism had to just continually be offered over and over and over because you never were really cleansed. You were just trusting that there was going to be a salvation and it kept you in a constant state of waiting on that. But now Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world is what John said. He paid for our sins and our sins are paid for and now it's not necessary to go back and every time you sin, get your sins back under the blood and the blood reapplied. The one offering of Jesus totally cleansed you from all sin, the past sin, the present sin, and even sin that you haven't been committed yet has already been forgiven. And I know some of you have a million questions right now about it. So you're just saying that I can sin? No. Keep listening. Here in Hebrews chapter 9, man, I wish I had time to... The whole book is just powerful, showing that there's a new way, a brand new way of entering into God, a brand new way of relating, and it all centers around that now you don't have to be sin conscious. You don't have to go and every time you sin, offer a sacrifice or get it confessed and under the blood. Those are radical statements. And I'm just breaking into the middle of what he's saying here, but in um, verse 11, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of, <clears throat> not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Do you remember the verses in Colossians 1.14, Ephesians 1.7, that you, we have now received redemption, that is the forgiveness of, or remission, that is, the forgiveness of our sins. This is talking about the forgiveness of your sins. It was accomplished once, once, one time, Jesus forgave all sin. Jesus does not atone for your sin over and over and over and over. Over in Hebrews chapter 10, we'll be getting to these verses in a minute, but it says that Jesus now is seated at the Father's right hand, implying that his atonement has been made. He is not constantly reapplying the blood. See, this is a tradition of man that makes the word of none effect, that you got to get the blood reapplied. You got to get that sin under the blood. When you got born again, the blood covered all of your sins so that you obtained eternal redemption, not momentary redemption, not redemption till the next time you sin. And then depending on whether or not you got it confessed, it's going to be under the blood. And if it isn't under the blood and if you died, you'd go to hell because you had an unconfessed sin. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. <laughs> Y'all are looking at me like, who would ever believe that? Probably half the people in this auditorium. This is what's taught. This says you obtained eternal redemption by one offering. Basically, religion is teaching that no, Jesus isn't seated at the Father's right hand. He is there and every time a person sins and then confesses it, he's reapplying the blood and getting that sin under the blood. And he's constantly sitting there doing all of these things. You know, if that was true, if you just took the people in this room and took all of the sins, some of you right now, the thoughts you're thinking towards me are sin. 
Some of the nasty things you're thinking about me is sin right now. And if the Lord just took every sin that is committed by the people in this room, there would be no rest. 24 hours a day, he would constantly be having to reapply his blood and get that sin under the blood. And if you take all of the believers around the world, millions and millions of people that are constantly, oh God, I blew it again. Oh God, there would be no such thing as Jesus seated at the father's right hand. This is saying by one offering, one offering. One time Jesus died for sins and he dealt with all sin. Somebody says, how could God forgive a sin before you commit it? Well, you better hope that he can because he only died for sins one time 2,000 years ago before you ever committed any. If God can't forgive sins before you commit them, then you can't be forgiven because he is not still forgiving sins. He did it one time through the one sacrifice of Jesus. He dealt with all of the sins of the human race and sin has been paid for. Sin is not the issue with God. Praise God. That will get me kicked out of 90 something percent of all churches in the United States. Because I guarantee you, sin is the issue. It's all about sin. You got to overcome this. You got to do this, this, and this. And if you don't do this, God won't bless you. God won't use you. God won't answer your prayers. This is how ministers basically manipulate and control their people. If you don't pay your tithes, God's going to curse you. God's going to come against you. He's going to take it out in doctor bills. And man, people shell out. People that don't even love God shell out. It's hush money. It's not God the Father. It's more like the Godfather. Amen. God, I'll pay you this 10% if you'll just stay off my case this week. Don't get me. Oh, God, see my 10%? I paid my hush money. That's not the right motive for giving. This says that by one offering, he hath perfected, I mean, he hath, um, he has obtained eternal redemption for us. Eternal redemption. That is nearly too good to be true. In verse 13, it says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more? Boy, there's so much in those verses. I hate to mention it because I'll stay here, but that is powerful. The Old Testament law sanctified your flesh, not your spirit. It couldn't purify your heart. It just was a way of dealing with the defilement that sin brought into your body and it helped get Satan off of your back. It cleansed your flesh, but it couldn't purify your heart. In the New Testament, it's not just our flesh that's being cleansed. It's our heart that has been cleansed and and sanctified. So how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You know, the reason most people, like I was giving that illustration, you would shout and praise God. I believe God raises the dead, but I say, you come down here and do it. It's your conscience that condemns you because you know that you haven't done everything right. You know why you have more faith in my prayers than you have in your prayers? 
It's because you know you better than you know me. If you knew me as well as you know you, you wouldn't have any more faith in my prayers than you got in your prayers. But see, you don't know all the stuff that I've done wrong. And so you see a minister up here and you see me on television and you think, oh, he's got his act together. He must be living holy. You know you and you know you aren't holy. You may be holier than you were, but you know what? You still aren't perfect. And the moment you get to thinking that I got to be holy before God will use me, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's a master at showing you things wrong. I remember one time I fasted and prayed and I read all of the New Testament except one book in the New Testament. And one day I fasted, I prayed, and I was feeling so good about myself like, God, I know you're going to use me. And you know what? The thought came to me. You were up 17 hours. You only spent 16 hours reading the Bible. And I got condemned about I wasted an hour. You know, I, when you get into performance, you could always do better. You'll never do perfect. And the moment you get to saying, but God, I've done this, this, and this, you've done something wrong. And your own conscience will condemn you. And this is what it's talking about. You've got to have your conscience purged from these dead works so that you can serve the living God. And most people, it's in this area of the conscience because we believe that every time we sin, every time we're less, whether it's uh, open sin where you're rebelling at God or whether it's just that you fail to be perfect in everything that you should be, we go around with a constant state of condemnation and sin consciousness And because of that, we can't serve the living God because our conscience hasn't been purged. Religion is keeping us sin conscious. It's keeping us under a sin awareness that limits God. It makes the word of God about salvation of none effect. We think we were only saved from our old sins. We don't understand we've been saved from even sins that we hadn't committed yet. Sin has been obliterated. It's not an issue with God anymore. Man, that's nearly too good to be true. In verse 15, it says, And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the remission or the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First uh, Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. In verse 12, it talks about eternal redemption, not momentary redemption till the next time you sin. Eternal redemption. Eternal forgiveness of sins. Now it talks about eternal inheritance. Again, there is a large segment of the body of Christ that believe that they only have inheritance with God as long as they still live holy and do everything right. And if they do blow it, they got to confess that sin and get born again again. They are backslidden. And they would die and go to hell. They could have lived with God, walked with God, and have loved Him with all of their heart for 20 years. But if you do one thing wrong and don't get it confessed and have a car wreck before you get it confessed, you die and go to hell. That's not eternal inheritance. Man, I just, I know that there's a lot of you that are swallowing hard trying to get this down. But this is what the Word says. Well, this isn't what I've been taught. Well, then what you've been taught's wrong. You're free to believe it, but I'm not going to agree with you. We'd both be wrong. Amen. 
I'm not going to take time to read all of this, but let me just point out a couple of verses in the ninth chapter. It just keeps saying this over and over. Five times it talks about one sacrifice, eternal redemption, eternal inheritance, one time. It just keeps making this point over and over and over. It's amazing how many times it says it. Down here in, um, let's look in verse 24. It says, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as most churches teach. As the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. It says that he shouldn't have to offer himself often. One sacrifice dealt with all of your sin. In verse 26, it says, For then must he, have, must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. See, it's making a contrast. Under the Old Testament, every time you sinned, there had to be an atonement for sin. You had to confess it. You had to make a new sacrifice. And then there was a day of atonement where you just dealt with all of the sins that hadn't been confessed and all of the sins of omission and all of the sins that you weren't even aware of. There was a constant flowing of blood. In Solomon's day, he killed over 30,000 animals in one day to make sacrifices. There was constant flowing of blood and stuff. But he's saying in contrast to that, the opposite of the way it was done in the old covenant, Jesus only appeared once. If it hadn't have been just once, he would have had to have offered himself often. He would have to constantly be shedding his blood and reapplying his blood. But no, now he's appeared once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after that the judgment... So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That's at least four or five times in just a few verses that he says one sacrifice dealt with all sins, eternal redemption, eternal inheritance, one sacrifice for all sins, for all times. It's over. It's done. Sin is not the issue. Radical truth. And let me say, even those that haven't accepted Jesus, it's not your individual sins that's the issue because Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He is the propitiation. That means the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, talking to Christians, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus not only paid for Christians' sins, people who he knew would be born again, he has paid for the sins of the whole world. It is not individual sins of lying, stealing, adultery that is sending people to hell. It says over in John chapter 16, verse 8, it says that when he is come, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And God knew that people wouldn't understand this. And so in the next verse, he explained, which sin? Of sin, because they believe not on me. The sin that the Holy Spirit is reproving people over is not believing on Jesus. 
Not the fact that you're drunk, not the fact that you smoke, not the fact that you did this, but the fact that you aren't believing on Jesus. There's just one sin that sends people to hell. All the other sins have been atoned for. It's the rejection of Jesus that sends people to hell. And the fact that they're out here doping and doing all of this, this is just an indication that they haven't yet received Jesus. It shows you that they aren't trusting in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is going to be drawing them all back to trusting in Jesus. Well, that is so radical. And yet that's what the Bible says. He's going to convict of sin. And then in the very next verse, what's the sin? Of sin because they believe not on me. That's the sin that the Holy Spirit is convicting people of. And he convicts even Christians of that. You can be born again and have have your sins forgiven and yet you aren't trusting in him. When you go get drunk, you know what the real root of the problem with drunkenness is? It's not that you're going to get cirrhosis of the liver. It's not that you're wasting your money. It's not that you could have a car wreck and kill somebody. All of those things are consequences and those are all reasons not to do it. But look at, look at it this way. What's, what's wrong with uh, homosexuality? Well, people say you could get AIDS and they talk about all of these things and they talk about that the, the statistics among homosexuals are... You know, 10 times as many people commit suicide in the depression and stuff. It's just, and you can talk about it from all of these external reasons. But what would happen if all of a sudden they came up with the cure for AIDS? So that you just take a pill and you'll never have AIDS again. The way that the church has been lobbying and reasoning with people not to commit sin is based on all of these external things. But the root cause of all sin is... That you know what? You aren't trusting God. You aren't believing. God made them Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. That was God's plan. And you're exalting your own deal and you aren't listening to God and you aren't following His direction. You think your way is better. That's the root cause. That's what is wrong. What's wrong with people who are taking uh, you know, drugs and getting drunk? It's the fact that you are so miserable that the way you're coping is to trust in a pill instead of the gospel. Amen? You ought to be turning to God. You ought to be casting your cares over on the Lord. But no, you aren't trusting God. So even Christians can be convicted about not trusting in Him. But a non-Christian, it's not all these individual acts of sin. It's just the fact that you haven't made Jesus your Lord. That's what the Holy Spirit is convicting people about. And if you don't accept Jesus, he's the one that all of your forgiveness is bound up in Jesus. And if you haven't accepted Jesus, you may be a better sinner than I am, but you'll go to hell for the sin of rejecting Jesus. And see, this also answers some other questions. People who think that you're going to be punished in hell because of all of the things that you did, they think, well, this doesn't seem fair. This person may not have accepted Jesus. They may not have believed on Jesus, but they were a good person. They did good things. They never murdered. They never killed. They stayed with the same mate and they did this and this. And it doesn't seem fair that they're going to be there and punished along with Hitler and other people who did terrible things. That's because, see, they judge based on how holy a person is. But when you understand that what sends people to hell isn't their individual acts, it's the rejection of Jesus. And when you understand that God, this is the greatest thing that ever happened, that God became a man. What an expression of love that almighty God, it says that even the heavens of the heavens can't contain him. And yet God entered into a physical body. 
and lived for 30 years. And he not only suffered on the cross, he suffered being human. God, who was infinite, became finite, was limited to a body, got tired, hungry, sweaty. People walked by him that he created and they didn't even notice him. And he suffered. He suffered rejection. He, Jesus, what a great gift. What a great sacrifice. And then he offered himself for our sins. He literally went into the bowels of hell and fought the devil and took the keys of death and of hell. He suffered death. He suffered everything that we've been through. And then for a person to say, well, you know, I know Jesus existed, but I think I'm a good person on my own and I've never done anything bad and I think God's going to accept me based on who I am. I don't need you, Jesus. They would never do that, but that's, that's what it amounts to. I'm good enough. I don't need you. There isn't a hell deep enough or an eternity long enough to punish a person for rejecting Jesus. And I don't care if they were the movers and shakers and if they got the awards for they did this benevolent thing. If they rejected Jesus and exalted themselves, they deserve to be punished for eternity. See, this changes everything. It's not just the rapist and the murderers. You know, the worst sin of all is the sin that Jesus, I don't need you, I'm good enough. I go to church. I pay my tithes. I'm a good person. God's going to accept me because I'm living a holy life. You are snubbing Jesus. You're saying that it wasn't necessary. Who needs Jesus? Or if you say, well, I'll take you to make up the little bit of difference. I'll trust myself 80% and I'll, I'll trust you to make up the difference. Nope. See, they're all Jesus or all you, but it's no combination of the two. When you understand this, it changes everything. And all of a sudden, you know what? It brings things down to a really simple level where you understand that it's just whether or not you are accepting Jesus, whether you're trusting him. And so it says in chapter 10, verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, uh, with, let's see, of those things can never with the sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? There's a question mark right there. This is a, if the Old Testament sacrifices could have worked, you'd quit offering sacrifices because the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sin. That's what it goes on to say. Because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. If the Old Testament sacrifices had been something other than symbolic, if they had really worked, then you'd quit offering them. Because once it worked, you'd be purged. Well, the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't do it, but the New Testament sacrifice of Jesus could do it. And therefore, we should have no more conscience of sin. Brothers and sisters, there's not one out of a thousand Christians that even has seen this, much less has moved in this direction as in is enjoying this benefit. Most Christians are sin conscious, constantly aware of their failures and I'm so ungodly and God, I've come so far short and we've been taught to embrace that and that that is a godly attitude and that this is a good way to be. 
Most people, when they start their prayer, oh, God, we come before you so humbly today. God, we just don't deserve anything. Oh, God, we are not worthy of the least of your favor. And we've been taught that it's wonderful to just sit there and rehearse how sorry you are. We are sin conscious because we don't understand that God has forgiven us. Past, present, and future, and sin is not the issue. And now we can come boldly under the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. We aren't taking advantage of it. I heard Kenneth Copeland say one time, he says, if you feel like a gnat on the back of an elephant when you approach God, instead of talking about how small you are, Talk about how big the elephant is. Amen. Instead of talking about, oh God, I'm such a failure. You ought to approach God and say, God, you are such a good God to love a failure like me. What a great God for loving me. Praise him for his goodness and greatness instead of talking about how sorry you are. And yet the vast majority of us are focused on our sin consciousness. We should have no more sin consciousness. Then he begins to quote Old Testament scriptures, how it prophesied that there was going to be an end to sacrifices because the Messiah prophesied in Psalms chapter 40, verses six through eight, that lo, I come to do thy will. And before he said that, he said, in sacrifice and offerings, you have had no pleasure That is not what you rejoice in. And then he says, lo, I come to do thy will. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. The Old Testament sacrifices where he had to offer sacrifices for sin every time you sinned is over. Now there is one sacrifice for sins forever. That's what he's talking about. And down in verse 10, he says, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The word sanctified means to make holy are separate, set apart. You have been made holy through one sacrifice once for all. If words mean anything, this ought to kill this idea that every time I sin, I lose my standing with God and I've got to go back and repent and get it under the blood and get back into relationship with God. You've been sanctified, set apart, made holy once For all, once, for all. There's a lot of people say, well, I don't care what that says. This is what I've always been taught. I can't help you. But if you are going to believe the word of God, then this ought to change the way that you believe. In verse 11, it says, and every priest, he's contrasting the way it was done in the old covenant with the way it's done under the new covenant. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The Old Testament sacrifices were only pictures, types, shadows. They didn't work. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Now in verse 10, sometimes I've had people say, well, he offered one sacrifice once for all people, but not for all time. The one sacrifice was for all people, but then every time you sin, you got to get it under the blood. Look at it in context. He goes on and in the 12th verse, he says, but this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, not just for all people, but for all time. One sacrifice for sins forever. 
sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Verse 10 says you were sanctified through the offering of Jesus Christ once for all. And verse 14 says if you've been sanctified, you have been perfected forever. Perfect. There's some of you thinking, well, I can see this, but I can't see it. You go look in the mirror and you think, this isn't perfect. You know that you got wrong thoughts. You know that you got habits. Some of you just can't wait to get out of here to go smoke or to go drink or go do something. And you say, I just can't believe that I'm perfect. This isn't perfect in your physical body and it's not perfect in your mind, but in your spirit, in the part of you that was born again, you were sanctified and perfected forever. And the moment you get born again, it says in Ephesians 1.13 that the moment you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit vacuum packs, encases your spirit. And when a Christian sins, it penetrates your physical body. It'll go into your mind and your emotions, but there is a seal around your born again spirit and it never gets touched. That sin doesn't penetrate the seal. And so that that spirit that was sanctified and perfected forever stays sanctified and perfected. It is not defiled by your sin. And John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. He's looking at you in the spirit. And in the spirit, you've been born again, sanctified, perfected forever. And it's sealed so that when you sin, it doesn't penetrate the seal. So if you become, come before God in spirit and in truth, he looks at you and sees you perfect, holy, pure, even though you aren't perfect. And even though you haven't done everything right. I know some of you are thinking, this can't be. Look over here in chapter 12. I could read all of the verses in between and they all fit. But look in chapter 12 in verse 22, it says, but you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of just man made perfect. This makes it very clear. It's your spirit that was made perfect, not your body, not your soul, but in the spirit, you have been sanctified and perfected forever. It's vacuum packed. It never fluctuates. God is a spirit looking at you in the spirit. And even though you look in the mirror and say, oh God, I'm fat. I'm not doing what I promised you. God, I can see the effect of sin on my life and, and all of these things you can see. God is looking at you in the spirit and God says, perfect. You're identical to Jesus and God loves you. And somebody is sitting there thinking, so you're just saying it doesn't matter how I live. Go live in sin, do whatever. And God's a spirit and I'm sanctified in the spirit. And so I can't lose my salvation. Nothing can happen. You can't lose your salvation in the sense that, you know, you lost your glasses. 
You didn't want to, but you forgot where you put it. It was a mistake. It just happened and you've lost your glasses. No, you can't lose your salvation. You can't sin your salvation away. If you could, which sin is it that would make you lose it? Well, it's the big sins. No, the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 10, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. Now, see, there's some people that think, well, now, wait a minute. If a person committed adultery and was driving back from committing adultery and had a car wreck and got killed and they didn't have time to confess it and get it under the blood, you can't tell me that a person who had an unconfessed sin of adultery would go to heaven. Well, the Bible says if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. If you are going to use that line of reasoning, then not only adultery would do it, but gossip would do it. Unforgiveness would do it. Depression would do it. God God said he brought judgment on people in in, uh, Deuteronomy 18, 40, 41, somewhere around. I forget exactly, but somewhere it says, because you didn't serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart, therefore God brought judgment on them, those people. So if you aren't rejoicing in the Lord, which is a command, if you're depressed and had a car wreck and didn't have that confessed, would you go to hell? If you go 56 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone, would you die and go to hell? Because the Bible told you to keep the laws of the land and you broke the law of the land. If you really believe that, all of us are in big trouble. If you really believe that, then the moment you get born again, I'd be doing you a service to just kill you. I might go to hell, but that's the only way you'd ever get to heaven. If you had to have every sin confessed, People say, oh no, those little ones, those are acceptable sins. No, the Bible says if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. It says in Galatians chapter three, those of you that want to live by the law, don't you hear what the law says? It says, cursed is he that continues not in all of the law to do it. Not just part of it, not just the big things. God doesn't grade on a curve. It's not just, you know, you, nobody makes a hundred, but somebody's going to be in the top 10%. And so the top 10% get in. No, you either have to make a hundred or if you make 99.9, you go directly to hell. (laughs) Unless you have a savior, unless you trust what Jesus has done. You're going to have to start categorizing sins and saying there's certain sins that are unacceptable, but going 56 miles an hour, that wouldn't send you to hell. Well, if that won't send you to hell, neither would committing adultery. I know what I'm saying is hard to swallow. I've been on the other side of the fence. I've been where you were sitting and I know that this just makes your skin crawl. I'm not saying that committing adultery is good. It opens up a door to the devil. You hurt the people that you commit adultery with. You are giving Satan direct inroad into your physical body. You're opening yourself up to sexually transmitted diseases. You have broke your covenant with your mate. You are allowing Satan to come in and the Bible says to whom you yield yourself servants to obey his servants you are to whom you obey whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Romans 6, 16. If you commit sin, Satan is going to eat your lunch and pop the bag. You are going to give Satan an inroad. You're going to be depressed. You're going to be discouraged. You'll get sexually transmitted diseases. You're going to suffer for it. But that sin did not penetrate the seal around your spirit. God deals with you based on who you are in Christ, not based on your physical things. If you are living in sin, you're stupid. But God loves you, stupid, is what I'm saying. 
God is not mad at you. You're giving Satan inroad at you. It's just like you're letting Satan put weights on you and destroy you and hurt you and and damage you. You're going to go to jail. You're going to have sickness. You're going to have disease. You aren't going to prosper. You're going to suffer. You're just stupid, stupid. But God loves you, stupid. Amen? And some people think, well, if I believe that, what would keep me from going out and just living in sin? Well, again, if you have any smarts at all, you don't want to give Satan an inroad. But you know, if you really understood how much God has forgiven you, if you ever get a revelation of salvation through the remission of your sins, if you understood this, you would be so appreciative. You would love God so much that you'd wind up serving God more accidentally than you ever have on purpose before. Instead of serving God out of fear that, oh, I've got to do this or God won't bless me, you would say, God, you're so good. You've treated me better than I deserve. You've forgiven me, God. I'll lay my life down. I'll give you everything. And you know, I I believe that this is one reason that God chose me to preach this message. Because you know what? I've lived holier than most of you have ever thought of living. And I don't say that to brag. I'm just saying, I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. Never used a word of profanity. Never tasted coffee. I'm Mr. Righteous. And some people think, well, you're preaching this just so you can live in sin. You can't say that about me. I'm living holier. I spend more time studying the word and praying than the vast majority. I could, you know, like Paul said, I pray in tongues more than you all. I wouldn't be surprised if I don't spend more time praying in tongues and doing things than all of the people in here. You cannot tell me that I am preaching this because it allows me to indulge my flesh. It's exactly the opposite. Titus chapter 2 verse 12 says that the grace of God, or verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared unto all men. And verse 12 says, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, to live soberly and righteously in this generation. The grace of God teaches us to live soberly in righteousness. If you truly understand grace, it doesn't set you free to sin. It sets you free from sin. The love of God constrains you to live for God more than fear does. We have had fear crammed down our throat for so long that you live holy or God's going to get you. That most of us think if I was to quit serving God out of fear of punishment and rejection, what would hold me in check? Love. I'm not faithful to Jamie because I'm afraid she's going to kill me if I do something wrong, although she might. But you know what? I love Jamie because I love Jamie. I love God first and I love Jamie. And I, I'm faithful to Jamie out of love, not out of fear or punishment. If you had a mate that was all the time checking up on you and knowing everything, and every time you looked at any person, you're lusting at them. And they were always criticizing you. And everything you did was criticized and attacked. You know what? You'd have a sorry relationship. And basically, that's the way that we've been taught that God is. God's not like that. God has already forgiven you all sins. God is looking at you in the spirit. And even when you are a jerk and you are acting totally wrong, God looks at you and says, I love you. You are righteous. You're holy and you're pure. 
God's not the one that's been ministering rejection and stuff to you. That's your own conscience that's condemning you because of the law. It's religious tradition that had made the word of God of none effect. And if you ever understood how much God loved you, it would just literally overwhelm you. You would love God so much that you would serve God with your whole heart. You would serve God better. It's amazing to me how people just think, no, people won't serve God out of love. They've got to do it out of fear. It's just the opposite. If you tell people about how much God loves them, they're just going to go out and start living in sin. That's like saying, if you give Jamie a Valentine's Day present, I gave her a Valentine's Day present. If you do that kind of stuff, then she's going to go live in sin. She's going to rebel at you. She's going to hate you. She's going to commit adultery if you lavish her with gifts and presents and show her how much you love her. It's exactly the opposite. Showing people how much you love them and doing things for them that they don't deserve. And it's just a gift and you're doing things. That causes people to love you and respond positively. But yet with God, oh no, if you tell people that God loves them and has sanctified them and perfected them forever, they're going to start living in sin. Only religion could make you believe that kind of stuff. It's just the opposite. And again... I say, you can't look at me and say that the grace of God and understanding God's love for me has caused me to go live in sin. I challenge you. You can hire an investigator. You can look in my closet and there's no skeletons there. I don't have anything to hide. The grace of God has not caused me to live in sin. You're barking up the wrong tree. You cannot convince me of that. It's just the opposite. Matter of fact, if you are living in sin, I can tell you, you don't know about the grace of God. You know God as a harsh, judgmental, critical God who's constantly, you're feeling his displeasure and you're trying to obtain his favor and appease an angry God. And it's because you don't have the love of God shed abroad in your heart that you're struggling with these things. The love of God, if you ever understood how much God loved you, I guarantee you, sins problems would fall off of you like shackles. They'd just be gone. It's the very fact that you don't know how much God loves you. It's the love of God that constrains us. It's the goodness of God that draws men to repentance. If you haven't repented, if you aren't overcoming things, it's because you don't really know the goodness of God. You're saying God's a good God, but you've got religious traditions that are making the word of none effect. And one of the biggest ones is about that every time you sin, it's a new infraction and God is turned away from you to some degree. That's not a good God. I'd treat you better than that. I'll give you more grace than what religion says God does. I've got people that are friends of mine. I say that they're friends. They've been great friends. And yet, you know, something happens and man, they turn on me and they blast me. And I've had people criticize me and say bad things. And you know what? I still love that person. I hadn't changed my attitude towards them one bit. And they've done terrible things to me. And yet I love them. If that person was in trouble, I'd give to them. I had a person one time that worked for me and just in front of my whole staff, you're a liar, you're a crook, your word's no good. And they blasted me and just let me have it in front of my whole staff. You know what? I gave them six months severance pay. They said, I quit and walk out. And I blessed them. Six months salary. Their house burned down not too long ago. 
And I sent them $10,000 and I've blessed them and I've helped them. And I love those people. And I, I, I still like them. And they just rail on me. And they wonder why I won't let them come preach. I said, hey, I love you. And I give them money and I bless them. But I'm not going to let somebody up in my pulpit who thinks I'm of the devil. I said, I love you, but you know what? I'm not stupid. I'm not going to let you get up here and criticize me and do things like that and pay you to do it. But I love them. My love hasn't changed for those people. I still love them. I bless them. I consider them my friends. Somebody mentioned them the other day and I said, man, I love those people. I think they're just neat people. I like them. You know what? I love them. I'm not mad at, I treat people better than religion presents God treating people. I tell you, something's wrong with this picture. God is more gracious than you have ever thought. Religion has made us to where God is this harsh, angry God. And a lot of it's because they don't understand the deliverance from the old covenant. And primarily, they do not understand that all of your sin, past, present, and even future sins have been forgiven. Sin is not an issue. If you've accepted Jesus, God loves you because you've accepted his son. He made you a new person and he looks at you and you're perfect. In your spirit, you're sanctified, perfected forever. God's proud of you. And all of the shame and the guilt that you feel is from yourself, from the devil, from the law, but not God. God's not the one who's upset with you. And man, if you could get that revelation, I tell you what, it would transform your life. And it would transform your dealings with other people. You could sit there and look past the things that people are doing and know that, well, you know what? In the spirit, they're born again. They're my brother and sister. They just got a really bad flesh. (laughs) They just really don't know the word of God. They got some severe problems, but boy, there's some good things on the inside of them. And you could love them based on who they are. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. Henceforth, we know no man after the flesh. He didn't deal with people based on what they were in the flesh, but he knew them only after the spirit. Because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You need to know yourself after the spirit. You need to know other people after the spirit. Man, that's awesome. I need to quit, but I just now got you to where I could really say some good things. You need to come back or... You need to get, I've got a series entitled Spirit, Soul, and Body that goes into this and uh, just a lot of stuff on it that would go into it a lot more. But brothers and sisters, this would change your life if you could get hold of this. And just because what I'm saying is different than what you've heard doesn't mean that it's wrong. I've used scripture and I don't know how people get around the scripture. The sad fact is most people don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe very much. Most people believe what they believe because this is what I believe. And who cares what you see? What what does the Bible say? Who cares what the Bible says? This is what I've been taught. I was born this denomination. I'm going to die this denomination. And what you don't realize is you're already dead. (laughs) Amen. You aren't experiencing life. I challenge you to take the word of God and let the word of God change the way you believe. And if this unsettles you and, and challenges your doctrine, go to the word. You know, if I had more time, I'd love to answer 1 John 1, 9, but I don't have time this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you for the word of God. Thank you for these truths. And Father, I thank you that Jesus made such a sacrifice. 
that he overpaid our debt. As it says in Isaiah chapter 40, that we have received double for all of our sins. Father, the price that was paid was infinitely more than the debt that was owed. And thank you that through that we are forgiven, that there is nothing left for us to pay, that we don't have to go around unworthy, condemned, sin conscious. Thank you that we have been forgiven. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would take these truths today and help people to understand this and to apply it to their situation, to start walking in a new freedom, to start approaching you in spirit and in truth instead of in the flesh, looking at all of our sins and thinking that you're holding them against us. Father, thank you for these truths. And I just pray liberty and freedom into people. I pray that the love of God, now these statements about that God loves us, God's a good God, that you're faithful. Father, I pray that they take on new depth and new meaning through us understanding these truths. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We agree and we receive that. And thank you for doing this.